I'm Beatrice Collier. And I'm Georgina Wolfe. And this is the Pupillage Podcast, brought to you by Middle Temple and us, your hosts. In this episode of our series on practice areas, we hear from Jude Bunting about how his political passions led him to a career as a human rights lawyer. And Remy Reichhold reveals the true way to get into one of the bar's most fashionable but challenging practice areas, public international law. Jude, welcome. Hi, yeah. Can you tell our listeners, please, you practice from Doughty Street, don't yes. you? Can, you? can you tell our listeners a little bit about your practice? I do public law um, in a variety of different ways. I do civil actions against public authorities like um, the police and the prison um, authorities. I do um, media law from a freedom of speech, open justice perspective. I do inquests. I pretty much do <laughs> anything where human rights are involved. Fantastic. And how, how long have you been doing that? When were you called? I can't remember. 2006. <laughs> I think I was called in 2006. So it's been quite a long time now. I used to, I got invited to a, a young public lawyer's party last night. And I think I'm probably a wee bit too old for that. <laughs> no longer a young public lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think of myself still as a plucky up and comer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I definitely still think of you as a plucky. Thank you, George. <laughs> so how did you choose your practice area? Um, I wouldn't have wanted to do uh, to be a barrister if I weren't practising in those practice areas. Um, I'm not someone who came to the bar out of a deep and abiding love of, you know, theoretically the rule of law or making sure that everyone gets a fair trial. I came to the law from a background uh, growing up in Northern Ireland um, my parents were camp- both campaigners. I wanted to do a, a kind of work that would ensure that I would help to stand up for the most vulnerable in society and you try and use what little skills that I have to ensure that people have a voice. So I came to the bar slightly politically rather than necessarily intellectually. And I've been very excited by the career that has been able to develop as a result of that. So do your clients tend to be individuals? Mostly, yeah. Um, most of my clients, when I'm doing, when I'm acting as a, in public law or in civil actions, I'm acting for the claimant against the public authority. One, one thing we've heard a lot from barristers is that there are no two days are the same. What does your practice look like, say, across a, a three-month period? It varies massively. I'm in court a lot. Um, for someone who I think does civil work, I'm in court probably at least two or three times a week. What, what sort of courts? And it could be, I mean, it could be anything from a long inquest that lasts for four weeks to a short, um, sudden um, application against a reporting restriction order in the Crown Court. Um, so last week I did uh, a reporting restriction order case. The week before I did a five-day JR, a reporting restriction case, an application in the master's Five corridor. Five-day JR, that's a serious JR. It was a serious judicial JR. review. It was a judicial review, yes. Um, it was a very exciting one as well, about spying. Oh, tell us more, if you can. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was about uh, the Investigatory Powers Act, which allows bulk surveillance. And I was instructed by the National Union of Journalists to bring an Article 10 freedom of speech challenge to that. It was a JR which has been brought by the campaigning organisation Liberty and we were stepping in to try and argue that additional point. So do you do much paperwork or is all of your work really court-based? No, I do 
a lot of paperwork as well. I just seem to work all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously, it's difficult, I think, to be a civil practitioner and to be in court as often as crime practitioners. The crime practitioners in my chambers, they're just in court all the time. And there's much less of a focus, I think, on forensic paperwork. I don't mean any disrespect mm. to crime practitioners. They're brilliant in our chambers. But um, you will both know the kind of work that you have to do to prepare for any kind of proceedings. If you want to set up a civil claim, you've got to do the advice, you've got to do the particulars, you've got to do the reply, you've got to do um, advice on the witness statements. Uh, and it's the same in, in any set of proceedings. There's, we just, I think you get used to paperwork. So how does it affect your lifestyle, working all hours? Um, just, I asked my daughter, we were talking as a family what our hobbies are, and she wanted, she was saying she didn't want to do ballet school anymore uh, because it wasn't her subject. She didn't want ballet to be her subject. And I said, what are my subjects? And they said, working and putting us to bed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and in terms of earnings, Jude, Thinking about sort of early years of practice, say the first five years, what sort of earnings can our listeners expect if they move into your area of law? Again, I think it really does depend. It depends on what kind of work you're doing and how the cookie crumbles. So if you're winning a lot of cases, even if they're publicly funded, then you'll be, you can be paid quite well. And I've always made what I consider to be a very healthy earnings. Um, in our chambers, we actively mentor people to ensure that they meet their earning uh, abilities. And there is a focus on trying to ensure commercial viability, even if, even though our chambers does a lot of publicly funded work. So there will be lots of our listeners out there who will hear what you said about um, you know, being keen to campaign for justice and to speak up for those who are perhaps unrepresented and don't have a voice. Are there any hazards in practising in that sort of area that you would warn people who are attracted to it about? Well, the obvious hazard is that that's not what the bar is for. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the bar is... I, I have found that not many people will share my political sympathies. Um, really? That's in, not so much in the bar, but more within the judiciary, I expect. And going to court and giving a passionate lecture about the rights and wrongs of a subject isn't going to persuade a judge. Um, and so being a campaigner or having a particular passion for a subject is very helpful because it means that you have the energy to be able to work as hard as you need to do on all of the different cases that you're working on. But it doesn't translate into effective advocacy and you need to make sure that you can back that up with uh, forensic thinking, nuanced presentation uh, 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 and clarity. And presumably it means it means two other things as well. One, that you perhaps will feel more uncomfortable than the average barrister about being instructed by some, you know, an organisation on the other side and also that you will feel much more emotionally involved in your cases. It can do. I mean, I had a very good friend when we were doing pupillage and she found it too too much. She was wasn't able to continue as a barrister. She was she was acting in immigration, and she was she found some of the stories that her clients were telling her just too emotionally difficult. Um, and that and that she felt that the system that was set up around that wasn't effective in terms of being them being able to get what she considered to be justice. Um, and it can be very emotionally grueling. Um, 
I think I'm quite a competitive person as well, so I don't really like losing mm-hmm. anyway. Um, <laughs> especially when I'm acting against scoundrels from five Essex. <laughs> should say to our listeners that we quite often appear against (laughs) public law requires a specific kind of advocacy because you're making a speech to a judge uh, and it's likely to be a judge of the high court in in contrast to making a speech to a jury or cross-examining witnesses yes exactly um uh, and so you have to try and think how who is listening, who your audience is, and how best to put your points across to them. Um, So what works in a public law arena won't work in a jury inquest where you don't have the ability to make a speech at all and you have to present your case effectively through questioning. Yeah. What, if anything, has surprised you about your career at the bar? I just, I find find it constantly rewarding and exciting in ways that I didn't expect. the opportunities that you have to work on such interesting cases for such important and vulnerable clients, I think, is is really quite humbling. So, although you made it clear that that was one of your motivations for entering the profession, it sounds like maybe you you weren't convinced that it would deliver. But yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I was. I, it's just I, I'm constantly pleased that my practice is exactly what I wanted it to be. Um, and I didn't realise that that was necessarily likely or indeed possible. Is there particular work experience? If someone has listened to you and thought, gosh, I'd really love to do this sort of human rights work, it sounds exciting. Is there work experience that you might recommend? Um, Well, I think the gold standard work experience is work in those practice areas. It's being able to demonstrate to whatever chambers you're applying to a long-standing commitment to whatever it is area that you want to practice in. Um, that could be ideally working as a paralegal in one of the top-class claimant law firms, um, and a number of them are advertising at the minute. Or it could be working for an NGO that also does, for example, advocacy. My pupil last year was someone who had worked in a cancer research charity and she had presented all of their benefits challenges in the tribunals and therefore came to us as someone not only with who was able to demonstrate commitment but also somebody who was a very compelling advocate. Um, and those are those are the ways the ways into this, I think. What about additional qualifications? Do you think that they're beneficial? I um, didn't I didn't I don't have additional qualifications other than the GD the the, the convert the law conversion course in the bar vocational course as it was then called um, I f- struggled I think in my pupillage to catch up because I didn't have the familiarity of law effectively yeah. I hadn't really ever read a case properly end to end I wasn't able to identify what is the key part of reasoning in a case um, and I think to a certain extent having a an academic background in the law really, really helps in that way. That said, it's not going to get in our chambers a huge amount of extra points in terms of whether or not you're able to demonstrate academic excellence. If you've got an excellent first degree, then having also an excellent master's or PhD isn't going to get you additional academic points from our chamber's perspective. Um, If you're able to juggle both the commitment working volunteering for an NGO, whatever the case may be, and the academics, so much the better. But we recognise that that's not always 
um, feasible. Are there particular types of chambers that you would recommend for those of our listeners who are interested in human rights practice? Do you think that they ought to go for ones that are more specialised or is a general common law set going to offer the opportunities that those seeking human rights practice will need? Um, If you want to be practising in, I think, the best human rights cases, then you should aim for chambers which has a particular special specialism in them. Um, you may want to be to do a human rights practice from an academic perspective rather than from a chip on your shoulder campaigning perspective like me, in which case there are very brilliant chambers where you can act for both sides, um, in chambers like Blackstone or One Crown Office Row. Um, who do both government work and claimant work in 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 public law areas? But ideally, you, you would want to be, I think, in a, a set that does gives you the opportunities to have access to the solicitors who are doing the cases that you want to do. I understand. Yeah, that's a very good point. Access to solicitors. Yeah, and it's important as well as you've you've touched on to find out what um, side that chambers that you're looking at tends to act for, because you could apply easily for you know what looks like a top human rights set saying you know i desperately want to act for claimants and suddenly find that they're a defendant or defend largely defendant set yeah i think that's right um and i think that's why podcasts like this or the opportunity to meet people who have a little bit more familiarity with the bar is so important because what a chambers how a chambers presents itself on its website is not always the reality of what that chambers is doing and it may be that a chambers presents itself as as a human rights chambers when in fact it's acting for the government and trying to uh, resist a human rights challenge which you may not find politically sympathetic yeah so mini pupillages are another good way in yeah but i find um, i'm i'm the, the longer I've, i'm at the bar the, the less interest i think i have in, in mini really? pupillages i have to say i've i personally didn't find them particularly illuminating um Maybe it's because of the many people which is I did, <laughs> in one of which I got locked in the toilet for a long, long period of time. Um, but um, I, I, I increasingly think that doing lots of many people which demonstrates only your ability to live in London without being paid for weeks on end. And I think that they can be... The people who do lots and lots of them, I think, aren't necessarily the people who are... That, going to be the best barristers you may just simply be unable to come to london and spend a week unpaid following barristers around the courts of course if you can uh, then it gives you a really great insight into what those barristers are doing yeah that's a really interesting perspective thank you ever so much jude bunting anytime In public international, I think I think there are two skills in particular that are really important. One is research, and the other is drafting, uh, because the the vast majority of the work is written work, um, and and so I think those are two skills that are really really important. Hello, Remy. Welcome to the Pupilage Podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me, Remy Reichold. You're a tenant at Five Essex Court, but there's much else to say. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about your practice and your journey to the bar where you are now? Sure. So I practice primarily in two um, areas. One is um, domestic law and particularly uh, police law. Um, but about half of what I do at the moment is public international law, um, which um, is, is totally different. And that's why we've asked you to come and talk to us. We've heard a little bit about public international law in series one. 
But we'd like to hear from you more about your practice area. First of all, how did you choose your practice area? In my third year at university, I um, had the opportunity to spend a year in the Netherlands on the Erasmus programme. Yes. Um, and so studied quite a lot of public international law while I was abroad, and I really enjoyed it. So I knew that it was something I wanted to do. But it took quite a lot of time before I could come and do that at the bar. So what I did is, after I graduated from university, I spent about six years working as a researcher for a barrister who is at Matrix Chambers, um, whose name is Philippe Sands. Oh, um, yes. And so I worked in that capacity for about six years and then qualified as a barrister and now do um, some public international law. And can you tell our listeners, who might not be familiar with public international law, what, what is it? So public international law traditionally was, um, or is, the law that regulates what states can and cannot do. So, so it's, it's completely separate, um, effectively, from, from domestic law um, and, and, and deals with the conduct of states. Um, so you get some cases where you have a state that has a, a dispute with another state and they will have a case. So both parties um, are, are a state. But you also now have um, more actors are getting involved at the international level. So you can get um, a company or an individual that, that can bring a, a case against a state. And what sort of cases are we talking about when you said, um, let's start with a state against a state? What, what on earth can one state do in an action against another? Or what, what are they looking for? So, so there are lots and lots of different things. Um, so to give you a few examples, some of the things that I've um, worked on over the last six or seven years, um, the, the various categories, so for instance, anything to do with the use of force or human rights, so that might be um, a claim under a, a treaty or a convention, like the Genocide Convention, um, or, or you might get a breach of a treaty. Um, so, so it could be on any, on any subject matter. It could be a boundary delimitation dispute. So it could be a land boundary or a sea boundary, or both. Um, or it could be something like decolonization. So, so lots and lots of different things. And does that mean that public international lawyers have to master or, or may be liable to practice across all those different subjects? Or do people tend to specialise in, for example, boundary disputes? Or how, do, how does that work? So you do get people that, that perhaps specialise in, in particular areas. But I think you, because there aren't very many cases... Um, you, you do need to be able to do lots of different things. And is that, in fact, one of the things you like? That sounds to me a positive. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think what I really like about it is there's always a really strong political dimension. Um, so that's always very, very interesting. But also, I think the other aspect is there's always a historical, factual element. So what you find is you, as you work on a case, you might become, um, you might find that you learn a lot about quite an obscure topic that, that not many people would have ever thought about. Um, <laughs> what so, sort of obscure topics have you encountered? So I think one of the things I seem to have spent a lot of my time on is learning about very obscure islands. Um, <laughs> so so that, that has come up a lot. Um, I think one of my favourites was working on a boundary dispute between Bangladesh and India, um, where I was responsible for working on the bit of the boundary that was right at the start of the sea boundary, so the first 12 miles from the shore outwards. And that meant having to establish exactly where the land boundary finishes, which, which sounds very straightforward. But what it meant was having to go into the archives um, at Kew Gardens here in London to find out where the Radcliffe line finished, which was the partition of India by Sir Cyril Radcliffe. And it turned out that that was very, very complicated. Um, but the reason it was very complicated was because in the particular bay where the land boundary finished... Um, an island had appeared 
at some stage in the 1970s. Um, okay. And it was effectively just a sandbank. But both India and Bangladesh felt very strongly about this island and both <laughs> claimed it. Um, but what made matters more complicated is that at some stage later on, there was a, a cyclone and the island disappeared. But both states continued to claim the, the island that was no more. Um, so I took great pleasure in drafting pleadings about an island in the past tense, which, which was still very, very heavily contested, even though it no longer existed. Wow, that's an amazing story. <laughs> Who were you representing in that case? So I was working um, in that case for Bangladesh. Who is your client then? Often it will be a state, uh, so a government will, will instruct a team of lawyers. Um, but then um, I, I suppose I was thinking who ultimately is, is there one person? Is there a group of people? Is it the Foreign Secretary? Who, who, who is it? Who? So this is what makes it so interesting is every state does it differently. Ah. So there will always be an agent who is effectively the state that is embodied in that one person who represents the state before a court. Um, but again, whether it's a foreign minister, whether it's an attorney general uh, or somebody completely different. Um, I've worked on some cases where a state has turned to um, an eminent law professor of that nation and will say, this is our agent. Oh, okay. so, so it's always very, very different. And again, how a state will uh, build a team is very different. So some states um, will work only with um, in-house lawyers. Some states will have very large external teams. So, so that's also what makes it very interesting. I'm sure that so many of our listeners are going to think, oh my goodness, this sounds amazing. Um, you... And they may well be in the position that you were in. That's to say, at, uh, at, the, at the studying stage, thinking, gosh, this is fascinating. I'm enjoying this a lot. But you mentioned that it took a while for you to arrive at practicing at the bar as a public international lawyer. Um, is there any advice you can give to help people transition from having an interest at their degree level to being a practitioner? Yes, I think the first point to make is that I don't think that public international law is not a big part of the bar. Um, and I don't think that it's particularly well suited to the bar as a practice area. What, now, what do you mean by that? Sorry to interrupt. but what, what I mean is that I think most of the practitioners um, have very strong links to academia. And increasingly, there are lots of barristers that do public international law, but it's not a very natural fit. And it doesn't mean that you can't do it or shouldn't try to do it. But I think what it means is that um, there are very few people who will come to the bar having never done any public international law and will then start doing it in practice. Um, but also, there are very few chambers that have a big public international law practice. So even a lot of the chambers that do public international law, they will only have one or two individuals or, or perhaps just a handful who do, who do some public international law. So I think my advice to anyone who, who would want to practice in public international law is, is to do as much um, work experience. Um, so there are lots of institutions that, that offer internships and things like that. So whether it's the International Criminal Court or the International Court of Justice um, that, that offer positions. Um, but also um, you might want to consider starting out um, in, in, in academia uh, before, before coming to practice. So it is one of the reasons for, for all of that, that unlike most other areas of law, there aren't small cases for pupils and junior barristers to cut their teeth on. These are enormous cases, state versus state, with big legal teams. So if you're going to get involved in them, you're going to get involved um, at a low level, but on an enormous case. Is that is that a fair sort of assessment? That's absolutely right. Um, and I, I, I couldn't have, have put it better myself, um, that, that every case effectively is going to be perhaps a two or a three or a four year endeavour. 
Um, and, and you do get very junior barristers that work on them, but they're, they're quite difficult um, to get. Um, quite hotly contested positions. Yes. Um, and, and so I think what you need is you need, um, you need a sort of particular skill set. So you need some experience is, is, is ideal. But also I think you need to be willing to um, work really hard. Um, and, and also that um, what you need to do sometimes is to be able to set aside a large amount of time to work on one, on one case. And that's not very easy at the bar when you're a junior practitioner. No, I can imagine. On more than one occasion, um, we've been at pupillage fairs and people have said, I'm really interested in public law and interested in public international law. And the number of people who say they're interested in public international law that I've spoken to at pupillage fairs, I would suspect is more than there are public international lawyers practicing at the English bar. It's a really popular area amongst students. But is it right to say then that sort of the message that you've got is this is not your average practice area. This is not something where you can just walk into a chambers and start practicing public international law. If you want to do public international law, you've got to start thinking about your career from the university stage, from when you're doing a law conversion, and you need to invest in doing serious work experience. It's not a case of mini pupillages here and there or the odd week at an at a organization. You actually need to invest real amounts of time, perhaps doing a further qualification, getting your CV in a really quite amazing state before you'll be able to do it. Is that, does that sound about right? I think, I think that's right. And I think that, again, there are lots of different ways in. But if you look at the junior barristers who do public international law, um, some will have uh, PhDs. Um, some will be visiting professors or associate professors at, at university. Um, and I think that's the reality. Yeah, these um, are the junior ones. <laughs> these are the junior ones. And so, um, but again, there are um, barristers like me who don't have PhDs and who aren't visiting professors. But um, I was very fortuitous in that I, I got this sort of work experience working for, for someone who was very, very senior. Um, so, so I think that's, that's why I say there are sort of different routes in. What opportunities are there for advocacy in this field? So interestingly, this is one of the things that I think makes public international law so particular, is that there isn't very much real sort of advocacy in the sense that we would understand at the English bar. Um, so a typical case, um, if you have an interstate case where um, that you have two states um, contesting a legal issue, um, you would have usually two rounds of written pleadings, um, and it would all culminate in a, in a hearing that would last potentially one or two weeks. But it is all very, very formalised. And so what, what would happen is um, each state would be allocated a particular amount of time and speeches would be drafted um, over a period of weeks and they would be refined and worked on and everyone would think about them very carefully. And the speeches are read out in court. I see, I see. And the reason for that is, I think there are probably a number of reasons, but the main reasons are that if you're acting for a state, it, often the client will be quite concerned about making sure that they agree completely with what you're saying on absolutely everything. Um, because, for instance, what you say in an international tribunal on behalf of a state, you're potentially binding the state to a particular course of conduct. So you can understand why the client would want to really be very, very sure about what you're going to say. They wouldn't want you winging it. <laughs> no, they probably wouldn't. Um, but the other thing as well is that often there'll be a simultaneous uh, interpretation of what you're saying. So, um, uh, for, for instance, at the International Court of Justice, you are expected to hand in your written speech at nine o'clock in the morning on the day that you are going to deliver it so that the interpreter has a little bit of time to read it and start working on it. So what you find is that when advocates go off script, you suddenly see the interpreters become understandably very flustered um, and it becomes difficult for them to, to continue doing their job. 
And does that therefore mean that you don't get a lot of intervention from your tribunals? So, so not very often. Um, you would have more intervention in an arbitration, uh, usually, but in the sort of permanent institutions like at the International Court of Justice or the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, um, you would have a, a, usually a large number of judges and, and very few questions. Um, I think it's, it's usually 15 judges at the International Court of Justice. It's about 21 at the International Tribunal for the Law of the yes. Sea. Um, but what you would often get is you might get questions at the end of the day or at the end of the hearing, um, and the judge would say uh, perhaps that you would have a week to answer the question in writing. Sounds so like heaven. Isn't, it isn't something that we would be used to at the English Bar. So you talked about how these, these cases can run for several years at a time. Presumably, in that time, you can still work on other things. So what, in practice, does your, does your sort of life, your working life, look like over, say, a, a period of about three months? Well, I think you will have probably heard lots of barristers tell you there's no such thing as a typical week or month or, or three-month period. Um, and I think that's certainly true for, for anyone who practices public international law. Um, I think there, are, there, there will be periods of time where, for an extended um, period, I might be working on one case or one pleading. Um, I spent uh, most of last year working on one case uh, for Mauritius that was dealing with uh, decolonization. Um, so again, that meant um, drafting um, many, many pages um, on a sort of a, a complex historical uh, issue. Um, the history so of the Chagos Islands. Exactly, the history of the Chagos <laughs> Islands and, and trying to find out exactly what happened in, the, in, 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 the, um, in, in Mauritius prior to and during uh, decolonization. Um, so that, that could well be three months of uh, sitting at my desk and, and researching and, and writing. Um, it could be uh, a number of hearings that, that last two or three weeks. But it could also be that I would be doing um, lots of uh, domestic public law. When you just referred to sitting at your desk researching um, the history of the Chagos Islands, um, does that, mean, that presumably doesn't mean Westlaw and Nexus, Lexus Nexus. No, so that would um, often be that there's usually quite a sort of heavy hist um, factual element to most cases. Um, so even, for instance, in a, in a, if you take the um, case we talked about before, the Bangladesh um, maritime dispute with, with India, um, in that case, for instance, we were looking at the stability of the coastline. It was a really big issue and the erosion that had occurred. So there you would need to learn a lot about um, that particular coast how erosion happens, um, and, and all of the sort of scientific um, elements. And so, is, it, is it up to you, sorry to interrupt, Remy, is it up to you to just go away and find out, find that out? So often you'd have quite a lot of support from the client um, in, in those areas, but we, we would also potentially um, have people on the team who would be experts in that field. I see. Um, and, and again, you'd have that really interesting dynamic of lawyers working with, with scientists and, and coming at things from completely different ways. And what are the things then that you love about your practice area? I love learning about uh, different cultures. I love learning about sort of historical disputes. Um, and, and, and also what I really love about it is, is it is a relatively recent phenomenon that, that states would regularly go to court rather than uh, deal with their disputes by, by force or, or otherwise. Um, so I think I'm quite interested in sort of the power of the state, what a state can and cannot do. And, and that actually, um, it's quite interesting that in public international law, enforcement is very difficult. Um, there is no body, there's no single body that can enforce an award or a judgment. No uh, global bailiffs. No global bailiffs. Um, and what you will find, however, is that in, in, in the vast majority of cases, states will abide by a, a judgment um, or, or a ruling of a court. 
um, even though there's nothing that would coerce them to do that. Um, so I think that, that those are probably the things that I find I find most interesting. You're also the envy of Chambers because you have to jet off at the moment's notice to some rather exotic locations. Well, I think that probably doesn't happen as much as I as I would like to, um, <laughs> and I have to say it does it does sound a, a lot more glamorous than than perhaps it is in in, in practice. Um, spending sort of weeks and weeks on end in in dark rooms looking through through archives. Um, is, is probably a more apt uh, description. Rather than lying on the beach reading law reports. <laughs> yes, it's not, it's not quite that. <laughs> is there anything that has surprised you about working in this practice area? I think what, what I found um, surprising is, is, is sometimes the sort of different working practices that, that, that people adopt. Um, and, and I think that, for instance, um, a lot of the work that we do, we work with law firms. So I think seeing the sort of different difference in culture and how, how that compares to the bar... Uh, can be quite surprising. One thing that we've been trying to ask um, everyone that we are interviewing is about earnings. I think it's very difficult for students to ask barristers about earnings and it's um, difficult to get a real sense of how much one can earn in a particular practice area. For barristers generally practising in public international law, what might they expect to earn in pupillage or within, sort of, say, five or ten years? I think that's a very difficult question to answer, again, because of the different nature of the disputes and, and also the different nature of, of clients. Um, I think generally it, it would be uh, well paid, um, but there is also a lot of um, people who do um, international work on a, on a pro bono basis. Um, so that might also be a way um, to, to get into public international law. Um, if you had other practice areas that you were um, earning um, then, then you could consider doing some pro bono work. So where would it fit in if, if the sort of scale is at the worst end, the criminal bar, and at the top end, the commercial bar? Where would PIL fit along that scale, do you think? I think I'd put it somewhere towards the, 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 the middle, yeah. um, but maybe slightly towards the upper end of the, of, of, of the middle of that spectrum. Thank you ever so much, Remy Reichold. Thank you very Thanks, much. Remy. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Pupillage podcast with us, Beatrice Collier and Georgina Wolfe, brought to you by Middle Temple. Production support and music by Alex Doppirala. Please check out the show notes for more on our guests, links to sources of information and a glossary of terms used in each episode.